welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Welcome back, listeners, to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where we seek to speak to the world-leading GCs, general counsels, and see what we can learn. I'm Jim Delcusis, your host, and look, I'm usually pretty excited about guests that I have on the show, but this time I am double down, super excited. We've got Phyllis Harris with us today. Phyllis is currently the General Counsel, Chief Compliance and Ethics and Government Relations Officer at American Red Cross. She's got fantastic things to say for us, I know, because I've caught up with Phyllis before, and she's going to make a super guest on this podcast. Hi, Phyllis. How are you doing? And welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jim. I'm excited to be here this afternoon. Now, Phyllis, what I usually do is kick off by talking a little bit about the phases of my guest career. I can see in your career, you've had multiple phases over different industries. Originally with the Environmental Protection Authority, I think you spent some 20 years there running or dealing with enforcement actions. So a bit of public sector work then, of course, with Walmart. I think you kicked off as the Environmental Compliance Officer, then Senior Vice President and Chief Compliance Officer, and then up to leading the legal ops function. And then, of course, now your time, I think, since 2019 with the American Red Cross. So I'd be interested to know, and I'm sure the audience would be too, was that a kind of a strategy career or was it happenstance or what what were the influencing factors? And did you actually plan out that kind of a career? Everything was happenstance, Jim. There was nothing... That was planned out, you know, even just starting from being in law school and trying to decide, you know, what I was going, you know, what area of law I was going to go into. You know, it's funny when you look back, you know, literally at my high school yearbook many, many years ago and under my name, it says criminal lawyer. Yeah. So when I went to law school, I actually thought that until I had a a summer where I was representing juveniles on the criminal side. And I was like, oh, I don't like this. Not for me. (laughs) Well, I, you know, I just found it way too emotional. You know, your feelings got really wrapped up in it and it was just emotionally exhausting. And so I had a great interview and it was not planned because I did not take one environmental course in law school, but I had a great interview with the then regional counsel for the Atlanta office of the US EPA when I was in law school. And he said, you know, Phyllis, I don't have a role for you today, but I really want to get you on the team. And 18 months later, he got me on the team as a part-time attorney I literally left a full-time job and decided to do that because it just sounded so interesting. You know, I I didn't have any science, you know, a a science widget in my mind, but it just sounded really cool to do that, you know, back at that time. So, you know, I just kind of stumbled into that and subsequently, very, very early, you know, in my really late 20s, my supervisor became really ill and she told the regional council that the person who should take my place while I'm out recovering is Phyllis. And so I was given a team of 15 attorneys, all of them much, much older than me, much more experienced. And, you know, the lesson there, I think for everyone is when you give someone a stretch assignment because you see that potential, 
you know, it's, it's a very, very high probability that that person is going to stretch and they actually are going to gravitate towards that stretch assignment and do a great job. And that really was kind of the launching pad, I would say, for just a career overall in leadership, Jim. It's funny, I talk about that quite a bit where sometimes you need someone to believe in you more than you believe in yourself and to believe that you can get out of yourself more than Mm -hmm. you. So that for me is certainly great leadership. Yeah. Uh, And certainly amongst my team members or uh, team members in the past, I've always thought about what can I do to allow the team to achieve something they didn't think they were capable of achieving in the first place. And building an environment like that always bodes well for a a high-performing team. What are some of the highlights that you would pick out out of those different phases of your careers and possibly some of the learnings that might have been a bit unexpected? Right. You know, Jim, I'm going to go back to what you just said about high-performing teams doing, you know, you didn't put it this way, but I would say doing extraordinary things, right? And I would say the highlight for me throughout my career hasn't truly been about me. But I would say it's been what I've been able to kind of extract from the teams that I would lead, you know, at each time that I was leading to get them to, number one, understand from the organizational perspective, you know, the business as, as a whole, and then our organization, and then fundamentally down to the person, kind of what's your purpose, you know, what is it that you, that you should be doing every day to kind of help the business grow, to help us support the business in that growth, and then to support your own growth. And when I can get teams to make the connections in those dots, that's when I have seen and have been so proud of extraordinary things, right? So when I think about when I was at US EPA, for example, and it's still that way to a certain degree, but there was always this friction between the US EPA and its role vis-a-vis state governments, you know, the whole notion of, you know, just federalism and who should be doing what. And it was always a, just a very antagonistic relationship. And, you know, I went in with the goal of trying to fix a couple of things because I came from a region and regions dealt very closely with the state. So I said, hey, we're going to fix this state and federal relationship. We're going to come up with a methodology in which we review states to determine how well they're doing. And if they're doing really, really well, we should probably let them flourish. And if they're not doing so well, having a transparent conversation on how to get better. So I was able to put in place, there wasn't, it wasn't there before, this notion of a state framework. But I had to convince everyone that this number one was a worthwhile effort and there was going to be some value out of it and and knowing what their role and purpose was in that big picture. So that's, you know, that's one thing there. You know, likewise, at Walmart, when I arrived, we were in the throes of several federal criminal investigations, environmental criminal investigations. And I was brought in and I didn't have a team. I didn't have anything. There were people in the organization who said they were environmental experts, but from where I came from, you know, that really wasn't the case. And what the challenge was, was getting 6,000 stores to do the same thing the right way each and every day in a culture that was built upon the notion that every store is unique to its community and that store should do unique and remarkable things to serve the customer. 
yep. which is very different from a notion of everybody has to do compliance the same way, no deviation in order to demonstrate to a regulator that you know what you're doing, et cetera. And I tell you, probably the proudest day was that we through the course of fixing this problem, which took about seven years, we had a, a guy who was at the Department of Transportation who was really, really hard on the company. And when this concluded, number one, all of the members of my team had been literally transformed to, tr to be true environmental professionals. And they understood what an environmental professional was and how you know that work was demonstrated. But more importantly, regulators saw that in members of the team. And when that journey started, you know, seven years prior, these regulators thought that Walmart was horrible. Yep. And quite candidly, Jim, I had that perspective because when I was at EPA, I actually sued Walmart twice. Yep. So I had that unique perspective. And, you know, and now, you know, taking all those lessons learned, number one, as a public servant, and then being, you know, at Fortune One and bringing that experience to Red Cross has been pretty amazing because yep. number one, the Red Cross at its very heart provides public service, yep. but without all of the hamstrings that you would get as a, as a true public servant, right? We're just there every day to help people who are suffering and because people are suffering every day. But then to incorporate the business piece that I learned at Walmart and just to elevate the value of the legal department has been probably the thing that I'm most proud of and doing that during this time of COVID because I'm sure many people appreciate when you go to a new company, it takes you, particularly as a general counsel, it takes you a good 18 months to build the trust with yep. your CEO and your peers so that people, you know, they trust you, they come to you with issues. And I'd only been there for, you know, almost 12 months when COVID hit. And so I'm not there in the room with everyone to get to know me. And our business has kept going. You know, people yep. were still being burnt out of their homes due to fires or we were in the throes just like now, tornado season, tornadoes occurring. You know, we go out and help people get shelter. We, you know, comfort them. But we had to figure out a way to do that, you know, that wouldn't cause harm to our own volunteers and employees. And then most importantly, we were still collecting blood. You know, the Red Cross collects 40% of the blood in the blood supply. And, you know, initially people were very afraid to do that because they felt that some harm would come to them. Yeah. And I, you know, had to do some things, have conversations with some of my business peers about how to do that in a way that would you know, would protect our employees, our volunteers, and certainly our donors. Well, it's it's funny, Phyllis, what you said earlier on that really is something that I talk about all the time and resonates with me. And it's what happens when you think about your career and what stands out. It is actually very rarely about yourself, the case. When I think about mine, was it about the case that I'd won out of the hundreds that I've run? No. Was it about some award? Typically, no. What was it? It was about, it's always about 
the impact you have on others, whether it's your immediate team, whether it's your customers, clients, it's about how what you do for others. And when I think about in mind, the handful that I would say is a career highlights, it's never about winning a case. It's never about a particular personal achievement. It is about the impact that you have on other people. So, and if, certainly any advice that I usually give to people who are earlier in their career journeys is to think about that. Right. Think about how they can empower and impact others because that's the stuff that typically lasts. The personal wins, they don't last all that long, I have to say. You know, Jim, recently, a random Saturday, I saw a name and a number pop up on my phone. And I hadn't seen this name and number literally in years. And it was a guy who I had worked with at Walmart. And what I loved about working with him specifically was that I usually got a chance to work with him when I would be out in the field touring stores. And and that's a special time you have with folks because you get to yep. know about the families, you know, and all of this. And, you know, you go to crazy places for lunch and what have you. And he said, you know, and, and you know, I've been gone, you know, two plus years. And he says, you know, Miss Harris. And even I corrected him like I would do then. I was like, okay, Greg, I'm not Miss Harris. I'm Phyllis. <laughs> He's like, I, I, I just can't not call you Miss Harris. And he just said, you were just on my mind because I was thinking about some of my great leaders and, you know, your face popped up and I just wanted to call you to tell you that today. And, you know, like you say, you know, you can get a lot of awards, you can get a lot of accolades, but, you know, having that conversation with him that day was just really touching and amazing. And if, and if you can do that, you know, many times in your career, it's all worth it. Yep. No, I agree. Tell me then a little bit about the role of general counsel and how you see that's evolved, certainly during the course of your career. What are the skills perhaps that they hadn't taught at law school and that you'd be talking about now saying, you know, for anyone certainly thinking about taking on that role, those kind of skills that otherwise might not have been all that obvious? So I think the biggest kind of change that I've seen over time is this notion that lawyers, you sit back in a very transactional way and you wait for things to come to you. You wait for the business to bring you the problem. You wait for the business to bring you the contract that they need, you know, negotiated. You wait for the business, you know, you're just sitting there. It's very transactional, right? And the biggest thing that I've seen, and certainly what I have instilled in the teams that I've led, as well as certainly at the Red Cross, is that the days of sitting back and waiting for things to come to you are over. It's about pushing to show your value as a strategic partner and being proactive and seeing trends that are in litigation, seeing trends on the regulatory front so that you can be better positioned to support your client in addressing those things. And you can only be strategic if you get to know the business. So there was a time where attorneys, you know, they wouldn't go into on the manufacturing floor. They wouldn't go into, you know, the the industry that I was in, into stores But the more you get to know the business, the more you get to understand the pressures that the business people face. Then when that contract comes to you, you can just approach it from a whole different vein, right? Thinking about, you know, the litigation, you know, I know many a litigator, they take what comes to them, they dig in deep with that research, and then they are off motion practice and, you know, lo and behold, if a case gets to court, 
they do this and they're done. Yep. You know, we've got to have a different way of thinking about litigation in terms of what's the trends that we're seeing. You know, are we seeing this type of issue pop up? And if we see it, what are we doing with our clients to say, hey, let's sit down. I think this is an issue that fundamentally you need to think about changing or else we can continue to get these kinds of yep. lawsuits. I saw it, my prior employer, I, I've seen it, you know, even at the Red Cross. So the biggest change is, is instilling this notion of being strategic, proactive, because when you do those things, fundamentally, you're yep. going to add value to the bottom line of the business. So a future looking proactive oh, yes. methodology well, about. Yes, that's the biggest thing, because again, I think attorneys were just very accustomed to waiting for the transaction, you know, to say, hey, I churned out 30 contracts. And while that's good, I would say that the bigger value is number one, just determining, do all of these things need to come to me? How yep. can I provide self-service to the business so that they can do the things for themselves? And then what I'm left with is just this higher echelon of matters that truly are the most complex matters that I can dig in deep with the business. And hopefully these are matters that are adding great value, you know, from a bottom line perspective. Yeah. Now, Phyllis, your commitments and achievements in environmental sustainability, diversity, inclusion, equity is amongst the strongest in the entire general counsel community. Thank you. So hats off to you there. But tell me what advice you would give to general counsel out there that perhaps a much earlier in their own personal as well as corporate journeys in achieving wins across those objectives, uh, particularly when they're starting to feel some pressure that they might not have felt, let's say, from the, the CEO prior to the last 12 months. What are some of the things that they can be doing to make an impact? You know, I hate to sound real cheesy, but I think the first thing is just having the courage to say, we've got to do something different. Yep. You know, I find that when you have that courage and then you combine it with just intellectual curiosity to say, you know, I recognize what I don't know and either finding a peer, you know, doing the homework to kind of understand the challenges that, for example, on the diversity and inclusion front that people of color have in the legal profession in terms of, you know, just being valued for what they can bring to your office or what have you. For me, I really dug in deep in terms of the notion of intellectual curiosity yep. and having a welcoming persona and a persona where people understood that I wasn't about judging, yep. but it was rather me learning about what the issues were. So my reputation has always been one where people felt very comfortable coming to me with these issues because at the very heart of diversity and inclusion, you know, you got the diversity, you know, and that's the easy part, looking at your staff, looking at the attorneys in your office, figuring out what you're going to do to bring more equity in hiring, how you're going to find the right candidates. That is easy. And when people tell me you're struggling with that, I'm like, you're just not trying hard. Not looking. Yeah. But you know, the fundamentally more difficult piece is once you get them there, how yep. do you make people feel included? Yep. And how do you really dismantle those things that are, you know, driving bad behaviors? I call it, you know, how do you begin to integrate what a wonderful woman that I've had the chance to get to know, Joan Williams says, you know, bias interrupters, you know, be it, how are you interrupting bias as you do yep. 
your performance reviews? How are you interrupting bias as you assign those assignments that you know, whoever does this assignment and they do it well, their yep. career is going to go to the top. Yep. And uh, we've got to be intentional about those things, Jim. You know, so my advice is, you know, you got to dig in and, and be really intellectually curious and acknowledge what you don't know, what you're uncomfortable with. I have found that individuals who have approached me and, and they've said, I need you to help me understand these issues. I'm saying I know what I don't know. Yep. And I respect that. I respect that. I respect, you know, I've had situations where someone came to me and they said, I have a real difficult performance review with a person who doesn't look like me. And I am a bit intimidated. And I'm sharing this with you, Phyllis, because I trust you and I want you to help me get through it. And I respect that, yeah. right? You know, I respect people who say, I don't know, you know, and, and yeah. I need help. And, so, and, and I'm not saying I was a person that could help them. Sometimes I say, well, you need to talk to this person or that person. But, you know, just owning it, I think, is the first step for many general counsel. And like I said, you know, the hiring and all of that, that's the easy stuff. Either more difficult stuff is making up in your mind, for example, that I'm going to demand of my law firms that my matters be staffed in a diverse way. Yep. And, you know, literally, you know, drawing lines in the sand to say after this date, this is what I expect to see. I need you to share with me what your demographic information is on my matters. You know, those are the things that really demand the courage. And the funny thing about something like that is there shouldn't take any courage because it's your money. It's your spin. Yep. Yep. It's for you to control. You know, most of the courage in that quite candidly comes from the staff attorneys who are managing that stuff. And they are used to working with the same people. And that's who they're comfortable with and getting them to appreciate the why behind why you got to, you know, do something different. That's fantastic. There's a couple of themes that certainly we hear a lot in speaking to general counsel. So I'm going to mention those themes. I'd love to get your thoughts on them. The first is the need to run the legal department like a business. We get that, we hear that quite a lot. I'd like to get your thoughts on that. What does that actually mean? Is that something that you felt in your previous roles? And is it something that you feel now at the Red Cross? I do. I think when you quote unquote run it as a business, I think it brings much more credibility to the legal department. And for me, what that means is when I get a budget, when I'm told, you know, the whole organization is some, it's hard. And I'm not saying I get it hit it all the time, but yeah. I'm given a budget and I'm told the whole organization has to play in this particular expense reduction. Yeah. You know, what I have come to appreciate and what I have observed is that many occasions, just because we're in the throes of litigation or it's something big, we think there's a blank check. And I would submit that the business doesn't understand the blank check. The business does understand that it is extraordinarily important, yep. but they expect you to manage it as a business in the sense of, have you looked at truly what the staffing should be? Have you developed a budget? Are you monitoring the budget? Are you trying to take out expenses and things that are unnecessary? You know, you'd be surprised, just those small tweaks. Yep. And when you can then show the COO or the CEO your data, and that's the most important thing about running as a business is the legal department having data, kind of showing what are your KPIs, what are you measuring yourself against? 
you know, the number of transactions, dollar value per transaction, you know, where your trajectory is and getting your legal spend down. When I have that conversation with my business partners, they love it. They just love it. And even if I don't hit the number that I'm supposed to hit, they know and they see that I have a stake in the game and I'm doing everything I can to be a part of the team. And I'm not accepting myself out of it simply because I'm in the legal department. So I actually love kind of thinking about those challenges like a business, you know, trying to show the value, trying to find trends with various aspects of the data. You know, it just really kind of gets to me when I'm able to see, oh, this firm consistently, no matter what matter we give them, they have a couple of partners always touching it on a weekly basis, you know, churning yep. it up. So, you yeah. know, it's, it's about what the business is doing. The business is getting into data. The business is using analytics and we should too. And I expect that kind of dovetails a bit into your time that you had at Walmart heading up the legal ops function there. Tell me what are the, on reflection, thinking about that time, what are the one or two things that are real, the real needle movers, if you like, in that function of well, the legal ops function and running it, you know, running the legal department like a business, what are the one or two things? If you only had a couple of things to choose from, what would you do? I would say managing timekeepers centrally. Yep. I think right now, most of those decisions are the decisions of the individual staff attorney, but I think a legal ops team can help with that in terms of number one, basically locking down the ability of any individual staff attorney and or law firm to add timekeepers indiscriminately and having the staff attorney specifically justify that, okay, when we pulled a budget together, we only, we thought initially that we would need four people, you know, two partners, two associates, a senior associate, whatever the case may be. But now because of this X, Y, Z, we're going to need to add a few more people and having those decisions, not necessarily decided by the legal ops team, but vetted, yep. you know, because I think it brings transparency. And I think right now those decisions are not very transparent. They're very much at that managing attorney level. And so when the law firm comes and says, hey, we need to add, or sometimes they just do it. They just do it. Next thing you know, you look and you get like, I thought we started with four and why are we at 10? (laughs) And so literally uh, locking down the ability for firms to do that indiscriminately and having a very controlled process by which you add timekeepers and you're monitoring those kinds of things. You know, I think, you know, you get to the next echelon when you are doing the analysis on the kind of work that those individuals are doing. That is you know, should a partner be doing this versus a junior associate or senior associate? But the biggest needle mover that I've seen, and that was at my prior place as well as here, is, you know, controlling those timekeepers and having a discussion up front about the budget and those expectations. You know, I know a lot of people will say, oh, alternative fee arrangements. And, you know, I've seen that work. But, uh, you know, I I think a lot of firms understand the finances behind alternative fee arrangements and they may say, hey, we're going to give you this for this amount of work. But they figure it out on the back end. You know, do you step, you know, they'll figure it out how to 
money, you know, and I'm not begrudging anyone making money, but I think the more important thing is just establishing that budget early on and the number of people going to work it and locking it down, you know, because the thing about even an alternative fee arrangement, and I tell you about, I've only had one that's worked really well is, you know, generally speaking, they, it comes back up to say, oh, well, we need to reconsider something because, you know, something's changed. Something is strange. Yep. And the other thing I would say, Jim, because I it happened to me on a recent matter, and I'm going to try to start implementing it, but there was a firm that just did an extraordinary job with upfront every other week or so sending me the data and the the statistics on how they were managing the budget that we had set. Yep. Right. And it and it wasn't an alternative fee. It was like we had agreed upon this is what we're going to do for this matter. But they did a great job in showing me every two weeks, this is what you spent out of what we agreed upon. And so it 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 made us think about, well, do we really need them to do this or that? Yep. And it was just wonderful. It was just wonderful. And it brought transparency. And I would say to firms to think about doing that because it brings transparency, it brings trust, and more importantly, it brings you more work. Because yep. now I know I can trust you. Yep. You're going to be transparent with me in what you're doing. Fantastic advice. Tell me, Phyllis, think about the aspiring GC, perhaps of a Fortune 500, if they're you know, early stage lawyer thinking about it, or even a quite a senior lawyer. What are the key pieces of advice that you would give, let's say, to the early stage lawyer first, young junior lawyer, and then to the more senior lawyer about who want to be the GC of a Fortune 500 company? I would say the early stage lawyer would be really getting a really good mentor, someone who you allow to give you feedback that's going to be helpful. You know, you don't need someone that's going to make you feel good all the time, but someone that's really going to... Bit of tough love? Yeah, be a bit of a tough love. One of my best... He happened to be a supervisor who was a mentor, and they were not necessarily one and the same. Yep. But I probably grew the most with him because he gave me a lot of tough love. You know, I would say the middle part of your career, it really is about getting visibility on high profile matters, projects, people getting a sense of what your judgment is, your ability to listen, your ability to collaborate, to be a team player. You know, we have, unfortunately, we we can get this reputation of being this kind of bull in the China cabinet. And there are times for that and there are times that you just need to listen and know what your role is on that team, be it in the legal department and more certainly as you are interacting with the business and being a part of that team. And then I would say kind of as a newbie GC, go in with a plan. And by that, I'm a big believer in kind of old school books on you know, 90 days as a new leader, yep. 100 days. And, you know, my playbook for this role, for every new role I had at Walmart was, number one, the first 30, 45 days, getting to know the team. You know, I think we unfortunately spend, a, you know, I look at leadership as a T, and I think sometimes people spend too much time on the T going up, yeah, trying to please the boss rather than, looking across at your relationships with your peers, 
but more importantly, looking down at the people who you're going to lead. And I would say your first 30 to 45 days, you need to spend time with the people you're going to lead, you know, learning what makes them tick, learning who's strong, who may not be so strong, you know, and understanding what the work is that they do and, and what are the pushes and pull with them being more effective. You know, I spend 30, 45 days with that. Then I spend another couple of weeks or at the same time in parallel, having similar conversations with the business, getting to know the business. We weren't in COVID. I would say asking business leaders, hey, do you mind if I come with you when you go to this plant? Or can yep. I come with you when, you know, like getting to know the business and then pulling all that together and understanding how, where the business is going and whether or not your organization is aligned with that direction. And for me, you know, and I don't restructure whatever for the sake of doing that, but for me, when I came to the Red Cross, I felt that we needed some tweaks in how we were structured to better align with the direction that I saw the business and to provide that support. So, you know, those would be the steps. And then I say it's it's a constant, it's like the constant gardener, right? You got to continue yep. to pick the weeds and, you know, fertilize and water because that's what it constantly takes. And even now, you know, we've been in this structure, you know, that couple of years, you know, I think about, you know, another couple of years doing something different, not for the sake of doing something different, but because I, I'm a big believer in continuous improvement that we should always looking for how we can improve. And so, you know, that's just part of it as well. Being the, as that I said, the constant gardener. <laughs> Great advice, Phil. So I've got two more questions before we wrap up. One I always, always like to ask and think about myself, what have you spent too much time worrying about in the past, which on reflection was just not time well spent? Hmm. I can tell you for me, it's just it's sweating the small stuff. If I think about what I have wasted way too much time, whether it's at a personal or professional level, it's actually being able to lift yourself out of a moment of what appears to be a little crisis, which in the in the scheme of things is nothing near it. So that, that's certainly how I always try to take a, what, what am I going to think in five years time about what's happening right this very minute? And I usually think right. pro probably not at all. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I try to put myself, you know, when I'm getting frustrated, it's usually because there is a lack of clarity on the problem we're trying to solve. And usually if there is something and you're having just meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting, I have just found it very rare that it's the problem is that complex. Yeah, I've usually found that people have not clearly defined what it is that we're trying to solve for like, what is it that's broken that needs to be fixed? And, you know, I'm trying to think, <laughs> there's so many things, but I think when you are kind of mired in that gym, it's, it's just taking away so much energy that you could just use yep. for other things. And as a mother of three, and as a mother who actually has a daughter who is now a practicing attorney, who is in a grind of, at a big firm, you know, the small stuff, when I look back, you know, the great example I like to give people is I have a daughter who spent eight years, I guess, because she started in third grade, fourth grade, playing basketball. She was really, really good. And the last game of her senior year was a state championship. You know, the first game, it's kind of like going through March Madness here, you know, the first game of the tournament. And I had to go to DC 
for a big meeting. And I said, and she says, you're not going to be at the game. And I said, no, but you're going to win tonight and I'll be there tomorrow. And I was at the meeting and she called me. She says, I'm really nervous and I really wish you were here. You know, Arkansas wasn't very diverse and there would be many, many times. And this was one of those times that my daughter was like one of the few people there in the gym who was black. And she says, I'm just feeling really nervous. I'm feeling really alone. And they lost the game. And it didn't matter that over the course of eight or nine years as she played basketball, we went to Orlando, we went to Omaha, we went all over the U.S. playing basketball every summer throughout the fall. It didn't matter that literally I'd seen hundreds and hundreds of games. What mattered was the fact that I missed the very last game that she ever played. And Jim, I really can't even tell you what the subject matter of the meeting was that I was at. So I think, you know, when we are sweating all the small stuff, we're missing out on the big things that matter. Yeah. And I tell that story all the time because I think particularly with what we're experiencing now, we really need to think about what matters. Yeah, I have a few of those stories myself, I have to say, <laughs> Phyllis, that I, <laughs> that I do try to bury deep into the recesses of my mind, but sometimes they mm-hmm. do surface. Yeah. One more question, Phyllis. What advice would you give to your 25-year-old self? And, and this might, uh, the, the, These last two might be a little bit connected too, I think. Well, my advice to my 25-year-old self might be to... Stop being so wound up. Yeah. You know, I was just really, really wound up. And it's funny because, again, I have a daughter that's an attorney and she's so much like me. Yeah. And she's just so wound up because I think sometimes we we, we want things to be so perfect. Yeah. And I think what I if, if I could do something again at 25, it would be to be able to really discern as I call it, what is, you know, I I say this to folks all the time, what is a Mercedes quality of a product versus a product that needs to be a Toyota versus a product that's like a, I don't know, a car that's not around anymore, right? You know, no one wants the car that's not around anymore, but there is a discernment between this is good enough, you know, and I think that, you know, at 25, I, I thought everything had to be perfect And in some respects, and I will tell you this, Jim, as a black woman early in your career, you do have to drive for perfection. That's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. I hate to say it. That's just the way it is. But at least at 25, being able to recognize it. And I I don't quite recognize it. I don't think all the time. It's funny, though, Phyllis, that may well be one of the key characteristics early on that actually caused the success that you've had or was a substantial contributor to that. So I hear you. It's funny. I have, I think, similarly myself on reflection. But then I think, well, how much of that actually made up who I was and kind of whether it's the grit, determination or the stubbornness of where I actually got to? So no. I wouldn't disagree with that. I think that's probably right. That yep. had a lot to do with this. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Phyllis, it's been an absolute blast speaking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to share some of your wisdom and your learnings with the audience. I've had a super time. Well, same here, Jim. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit 
P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.